time to turbocharge your online presence and unlock the true potential of your website's digital journey with their frictionless experience. This podcast delves deep into the world of user experience to help you eradicate costly friction. Join us as we dive into website and mobile app optimization to explore how refining your digital playground can become a game changer for your business. This is the Frictionless Experience, brought to you by Blue Triangle. Hello, and welcome to the Frictionless Experience, the podcast where we lay waste to digital friction. I'm your co-host, Chuck Moxley. And I'm Nick Palladino. On today's episode, we're diving into marketing, one of the five friction forces that occur in digital experiences. Joining us on today's episode is Mark Friedman, who most recently was VP of Digital for Eddie Bauer, but he brings tremendous background and experiences in in digital and e-commerce strategy from some of the most recognizable direct-to-consumer brands, including Brooks Brothers, Steve Madden, Speedo, Calvin Klein, and Hanover Direct, which Mark is arguably one of the original DTC brands back in the, the old days. Uh, today, Mark has his own consultancy helping many leading DTC brands make the most of their e-commerce efforts. And we're also humbled by the fact that Mark hosts his own podcast, the Marketing Playbook Podcast, and has produced more than 80 episodes. So I think you can probably teach us a few things today. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, guys. Good to be here. Great. Now, before I dive into questions from Mark, Nick, can you explain what we mean by the five friction forces in case this is the first episode somebody's dialing into? Yeah, absolutely. So the five friction forces are all about understanding that digital space for various different verticals. Uh, Marketing exists at the top because that's how you drive users to your experience. But once they are there, what does the site look like for the site aesthetics? Does that create friction or the usability inside that journey? Does that create friction? Or is it all dependent on the seasonality of when users are coming to your site? Does that create new friction? And wrapping it all up, that's in that site performance to understand that, hey, really, that just erodes that volume that we've been driving at the very top in marketing that we're talking about today. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. And as noted on today's show, we're, we're going to be tackling the topic of marketing, although I'm fairly confident this discussion is going to bleed into many areas since, since Mark, you've had full P&L responsibility at many of your of your prior gig. So I have a feeling we'll, we'll be a little bit rambling on this, but we'll, we'll, we'll just dive right in and, and see where the conversation takes us. So Mark, when we think about driving demand in e-commerce and the role of marketing, it can take a wide swath covering a lot of, of areas and disciplines. Thinking back across the various brands where you've worked, what were the key factors that determined success in driving demand and traffic and improving ROI on your marketing spend? And we only have one hour, huh? Um, so, you know, look, I think it, it, uh, a lot has to do with uh, not only the brand, but also the time in life that we were, you know, doing this. You know, if you go back to the early parts of my career uh, after I, I gave up public accounting, which thankfully I I did, um, you know, it was a catalog focused uh, kinds of businesses that I was in. You know, we were sending out millions and millions of 80 page or bigger, uh, you know, catalogs. And that was the main driver of the businesses that I worked in. As time evolved uh, and, you know, got closer to 
uh, what I like to, to say is uh, the, the turn of the century. When we got to 2000, you know, it was this combination of direct mail catalog, um, but also, you know, the web, you know, was becoming, you know, much more prominent. When I got to Brooks Brothers in, in 2000, they had already had a nascent website. Uh, we were, you know, we had stores, both full price and factory outlet stores, and we had a catalog. Um, and so bringing these four channels essentially together were the ways that we were, you know, driving, um, you know, business, you know, fast forward to, you know, 20 some odd years later, it's really not very different though. Some businesses, um, have moved away from paper and they're not nearly as reliant on catalogs as they used to be. Uh, there is this swing back to, um, you know, some reliance on paper, whether it be direct mail, maybe it's fewer catalogs, maybe it's fewer pages. Um, but paper, you know, has kind of come back into fashion, um, for a bit and also, uh, uh, you know, you've got stores and, and, and then, you know, the web, which is, you know, super important to almost every business uh, that's out there. Yeah. It's so interesting. What's old is new again, right? Because all these DTC brands came and said, oh, we're going to do it all with websites. And then they go, oh, you know what? Direct mail actually works. And guess what? We're going to open stores because people sometimes want to go in the store and check it out. And it's so interesting. And other retailers are closing stores. So it's kind of <laughs> a weird cycle. Yeah, it, it, it goes into the life cycle of the business. You know, you think about um, so many of these brands that started as digitally native, you know, and I don't know for sure because I didn't work in any of the digitally native businesses, but I get the feeling that many of them thought that, geez, we are going to be digitally native. We're not going to need stores. We're not going to be paper. We're just going to allow digital tactics to drive our business. But almost all of them that are still around at some moment in time realized that they need needed the other legs in the stool to help get their name out and to drive business. So to your point, they opened stores, they went to catalogs, they went to, you know, direct mail. So postcards and other kinds of things. And now all three of those, you know, channels kind of play together. Yeah. There's a role for all of them, right? So I know that uh, attribution is challenging topic. Again, if we only have an hour, that could be more than an hour. But especially in today's multi-channel environment, what's your approach to knowing what's working and what's not? What's driving revenue and what's simply costing you money? Yeah, so the A word, we tend to leave the A word questions uh, on my podcasts to the end because nobody ever really wants to talk about it. Um, thank you for uh, putting it right at the top of your show <laughs> so that we can't, we you can't uh, bypass it. Um, well, look, um, I, I think it's, it's complicated. There's no right or wrong answer. Um, I'm a believer that you have to triangulate on a lot of different uh, data points to determine, you know, what is working. You know, I've got a client right now, uh, it's a smaller business and, you know, they, they tend to be talking about the platform revenue, you know, the revenues that Google and or Meta um, are showing them and looking at the return on ad spend, the ROAS uh, that they're seeing from each platform. And my comments to them have been, you know, that's really not the optimal way to be looking at this because there's duplication. You know, again, not to be the old guy on the call, but uh, on the on the video on the podcast. But you know, when you go back to things uh, when web became uh, started to become more important, you know, a customer uh, placed an order either through their desktop or their mobile mobile device. There wasn't this back and forth movement uh, across devices. They tended to either buy through Google through search, or they tended to buy through 
being driven by an email. There were fewer tactics that were actually contributing to the order. Now, today, there are multiple devices before a customer makes a purchase, and there are multiple tactics that they touch, hence the need for trying to um, triangulate and, and, and attribute the sale to a particular device and or tactic. Um, so, you know, there are many tools out there. Good attribution tools are very, very expensive, um, in my experience. Uh, you can, you know, kind of muddle your way through with uh, a Google Analytics or now a GA4 um, and some of the other less expensive tools that are out there. Um, I'm not sure that spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on attribution tools are going to give you substantially different answer than what some of the less expensive tools might be. Um, last click is still something that, you know, lots of people are using. Last click defined as, you know, giving credit to the last channel that a customer, you know, clicked on right before they made a purchase. Um, so I guess, you know, I don't know if I answered the, the, your, your question because I'm not sure there's an answer. Uh, the fact is attribution is important. You really need to know which of the channels are contributing to driving that purchase so that you can, change your channel mix, you know, where your spend uh, goes. You know, when I talk to clients and I've lived this myself, I've always challenged my teams to make sure that they understood if you, if you don't know where you're going to spend the, the next dollar of marketing that you have, then you don't fully understand your business. And I think a lot of businesses don't truly know uh, where that next dollar should be spent. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point, and I I I think where you're netting out and and the way I've always felt about it is, it's it's a bit of science and a bit of art, right? It's it's and it's never perfect. There's no perfect attribution model, so it's a. But to your point, the more data you've got, the more you can understand, the better you can understand where your dollars are going and what's driving. Absolutely, uh, definitely art and science uh, for sure. So. You and I both cut our teeth in the original catalog and direct marketing business. Um, what do you think brands could learn today from those experiences and adapt to driving these frictionless digital experiences? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think some of it has to do with, um, you know, segmentation. Um, you know, we were in, in the catalog day, you know, you had this uh, key code or source code on the back of a, of a catalog and, you know, a customer actually placed a, a phone call and, and in, really in the old days, uh, they mailed in their order. I tell my kids about that and they just absolutely <laughs> laugh. You mean somebody sent, wrote down on an order form and, and sent it in and, um, but yes, that's the way it was done. Uh, but in in that sense, it was a lot easier for us to determine the source of the name that we got the order from. So if we were doing prospecting and um, we bought a list or rented a list from XYZ company, there was a source code on the back of the book that the customer got. And when they called in, we asked them for that code or when they wrote in, uh, we captured that code and you were able to do that 70 or 80% of the time. So the, the whole concept of of identifying the source of the customer so that you knew which lists, whether it be your customer file or a prospecting file, um, were, were, it was telling you which were the ones that were performing better than the others. And so therefore, the ones that performed well, you kept mailing and you probably increased the frequency of the mailing. The ones that didn't work well, you tried to 
what I like to say, boil down that universe and resegment a group so that you could see if you could find a subset of a larger segment to mail to. And I think that's kind of what we're doing, you know, today in a lot of our tactics. We've got audiences in email, we've got audiences in SMS, and we're constantly trying to segment that and better target, you know, to whom we're speaking to. Gotcha. And and what do you think, how have consumer expectations changed and what must brands do differently today, say, you know, versus 20 years ago to remove friction in their retail experiences and attract and retain customers? Yeah, well, shipping is one of those you know things that's changed you know the most in in those days, um, you know pre web. If you went to a catalog company and you looked at their P and L, you know there were ones that didn't fit this bill. They were super successful, but um, most many catalogers, if you asked them where they were making their money, there were two lines on the P and L where they were making money. One was on shipping revenue, and the other one was on the sale of their list, the rental of their list. And everything else, the, the actual sale of the product that they were selling, they weren't making very much money on it. Well, you, you now bring Amazon into the mix, um, and you asked about you know, customer expectations. Customer expectations are that I get it same day you know, or I get it you know, next day. Certainly, the, the idea of waiting you know, seven to 10 business days, which trust me, plenty of retailers still take that long to get product into consumers' hands. The difference is um, the, the customer today is not tolerating paying for that service, if you call it service in quotes, uh, they want that for free, certainly free over a certain dollar hurdle. So that's a big expectation. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, about uh, it, it also about time, you know, the idea that I send an email to a retailer and they tell me uh, that uh, they'll get back to me in 24 to 48 hours. That is just, you know, crazy to me. Um, you know, if you're not a retailer where you're giving customer direct access through text or chat or, or something like that, I think you're totally missing uh, the boat. So speed, um, speed of information, speed of getting my order are, are, are certainly some of the things that have changed. I think one of the really interesting parts of this is, is really talking about that actual like chat experience as well. Right. Like you've driven all these users into your site. You're asking them to go through that that experience. Why are they reaching out in the first place? But what is the experience within reaching out? Like, I mean, you, you hit it perfectly with saying, OK, you reach out with an email and they say, we'll get back to you in 24 to 48 hours. Like, what do you do in that moment? You obviously go somewhere else. Like no one's waiting that time anymore unless it's super exclusive. I laugh. Yeah, I and and look, I'm a consumer as well, and I'm a a different kind of a consumer than the average consumer because I know what's going on the other side of the the screen, and I laugh when I you know get a note back that says you know, we'll get back to you in one to two days, um, and and I think Nick, your point is is also a good one about the experience in chat. You know, so many of the chat you know bots that are out there are you know there there's automated, you know, and I really want to talk to a live person. And, you know, uh, many retailers are not giving you that level. It's, it's all pre-arranged um, answers to questions. And then only after you bang your head against the wall, can you get to a live agent. And then once you get to the live agent, they're handling six chats at the same time. And, you know, I, I'm 
the least patient person I know. Um, and if they're not talking to me in real time, then that's just aggravating. Yeah, that that harkens back to they're they're applying the same thing they did with their eight hundred number and that whole automated response up front that it takes you twenty six steps or you have to keep yelling agent agent you know to get through the process <laughs> for those of us who are frustrated easily. I just copy the word agent and I just keep pasting it and hit enter <laughs> until the the automation is like this guy's erroring us out like something's wrong. <laughs> That's funny. And it's funny, Mark, when you talk about the when we used to mail in orders with checks. And I remember that from a kid and it was six to eight weeks to get your product. Right. And now you talk about people get upset if it's more than six or eight hours to get your product. So wrapping this back into marketing, like it, it's kind of showing us that the experience inside after you've driven the user into the actual the volume, right? Let's talk about volume, the funnel. But each of the experiences throughout that funnel kind of serve as the marketing team for the lower funnel itself. So you come to the homepage. If you have good homepage experience, you might go to the product page. But if you didn't have a good one, then you're going to stop on the homepage and you're already out of there. And that just keeps going down that funnel. So as you kind of think about that funnel, I like to think about each each stage, the higher the level in that funnel, each stage is the marketing team for the next stage into the funnel until you ultimately get out of the checkout. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things that, you know, it's it, people understand this intuitively, but they don't think about it so much is, you know, once you get them to, let's call it to your homepage or to your site, regardless of where they are, you know, you, you're out of pocket marketing dollars. All right. Sure. You're going to have some organic traffic that's free and you're going to have natural traffic that's free and direct load traffic that's free. But, you know, in most businesses, um, you know, more than half of the traffic is being driven by some kind of a paid media um, and driven by a click. So, you know, now you've got customers, uh, you're out of pocket and so much of that traffic leaves because of the experience that the customer has once they get there. And to your point, Nick, about the funnel, yeah, you know, what's their first experience, whether it be in a category page or a PDP, product detail page or the homepage. And then as they move further in, um, that's all, all things that you could be doing to enhance that experience. And, you know, I, I say this all the time. So many brands come to me and say, geez, we need more traffic. And my answer is, you know what? You don't need more traffic. You need to do more with the traffic that you're getting and your business will grow and be more profitable. And, um, you know, a lot of businesses don't focus that way. Yeah. That's, that's kind of tapping on that experience side, side aesthetics and usability, which we'll, we'll obviously have episodes on that as well. But, um, it's, it's really giving us the understanding that everything is intertwined. I mean, it, you know, at a marketing level, if you're driving the wrong user in the first place, then their experience is going to be worse. I mean, if, if you have the wrong person there, they're obviously not going to convert. So how do we make sure that we, you know, have campaigns that are focused on creating the fr friction less experience for the right user? Now, all of a sudden the, the equation becomes more complicated, but if you break it down into bite-sized chunks, each one can become you know, more consumable. And, and it, it reminds me of that old expression. It's, it's yours to lose, right? You get the customer there and then, then you have lots of opportunities to lose them in that process. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that you've got, um, you know, it's interesting, you know, I, I shop a lot online, um, not only to buy stuff, but to see what people are doing. And, you know, even the brands that I shop with 
most often, most frequently, let's leave Amazon out of this, you know, a lot of them know a lot about me. Um, not only my, my psychographics and my lifestyle, they know, you know, lots of purchases about me yet, you know, and I do this experiment with my wife, she'll sit with her laptop and I'll sit with my desktop and we'll go to the same site and see what they show us. And she's never bought and I'm a good buyer. And yet we're having the same exact experience. They're showing me the same images, the same product, the same path. And that's a real problem. Um, and you'd be surprised. Um, retailers that you would expect would have had the, the thought capability and the deep pockets to be able to more tailor a personalized experience are not doing so. A lot of opportunities, it sounds like, for, for uh, increasing performance as well as reducing friction. So, uh, Nick, you make a good point that they're all intertwined. So I'm going to bring in another one of the five <laughs> friction forces of seasonality and driving online demand. So obviously for retail brands, Black Friday, Cyber Monday are critical make and break periods. How have you in your past balanced driving demand while creating frictionless digital experiences at periods when peak volumes of traffic are going to be coming through the site, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, uh, it, you know, you there's a, a catch 22, you know, you want to spend when they're, or you want to, you want to fish when the fish are biting and, you know, you want to increase your spend because there's more people out there, you know, in November and December shopping, especially if you're, you know, a, a product that could be, you know, construed as gift giving. Um, but, um, you know, you'd be surprised a, a lot of apparel businesses that I've been in over the years while, you know, 40% of our demand was done during that period of time, you know, they're not the traditional gift giving businesses. There's a lot of personal consumption that goes on, you know, during that, that, uh, holiday period. Um, but you know, in, in most businesses that I've been in, you know, you've got this holiday readiness, you know, kind of, uh, you know, war room, if you will, game, game, uh, planning. And, uh, you know, when I was at Eddie Bauer, they had done a really good job of, of holiday readiness and literally every, uh, department in the business, um, you know, starting in September was kind of laying out the things that they would be doing to get themselves prepared, uh, for, for holiday, whether it was customer service or the distribution center, um, or what we were going to be doing in digital marketing or the creative execution, you know, all of those pieces, you know, came together, you know, we did load testing on the site to make sure that, you know, over the ensuing, you know, past year, we've made lots of technology changes. Uh, you do load testing, making sure that you're going to be able to, uh, handle the significant increase in traffic that hopefully, you know, will come your way. Um, but you know, it's certainly an important time. You've got to plan for it. You know, one of the things I think you got to be careful, and I've seen a lot of studies, is that while you're increasing your prospecting during this time, in most cases, simply because, back to my point, you want to fish when the fish are, are, are biting, uh, customers that are acquired during holiday don't always perform with the same lifetime value down the road as those, you know, kind of tried and true customers, as well as those that you might've acquired to your business at other times of the year. And I think, you know, kind of the thinking is that, you know, these are people, maybe they are gift giving, maybe they're looking for a deal. Um, and during holiday time, they're really trial buyers. They're not necessarily customers. And, um, you know, that's something to be careful about. And if you're not tracking 
the lifetime value of customers by the month of cohort or the seasonality of the cohort that you, when you acquired them, you should be. We, uh, at, when I was at Home Depot, part of the knock and, and doing it, the war room, just like you're saying, um, one of the things we would actually monitor was slick deals because we want to make sure that we know when a certain product is bubbling to the top at slick deals that we can watch the way those that journey's flowing for our users. We want to see the way they're they're coming through and make sure that that, that deal and until it sells out ends up having a good experience for our customers end to end because slick deals was driving a what we saw as an organic I mean obviously it's affiliate marketing but um, we saw it as an organic growth because that would just be hey it's a popular deal that was just driving and, and sending a lot of users through that funnel so it was always a really really cool thing to watch so we'd be looking and seeing okay we have one here it's it's starting to trend but it's not there yet and then all of a sudden it would pop to the top and then you know we could just see everything it's really really cool to see yeah and it's important to to if you can identify things like that it's good to know for next year right because you know next year you're doing your planning and you're saying wow i'm going to do x dollars on this day and you realize well maybe i can't anniversary that because the slip deals you know program that ran you know was organic in nature and it, it got picked up you know which friction points are hurting you the most Finding friction with your current tech stack is a good start, but monitoring and digital analytics tools only tell part of the story, leaving you with unanswered questions. Only Blue Triangle quantifies revenue-robbing friction on every page so you can prioritize issues and fix what matters most. Companies can't afford websites with maddening friction. Visit bluetriangle.com today and turn observability into profitability. To learn more or request a demo, visit bluetriangle.com. So, Mark, can you think of a time in your career where you where you came up with an idea to drive demand that you thought would be a game changer, but either it didn't work or conversely, it worked so well, it created a new problem? Wow. Um, well, I've never had a mistake before, Chuck, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, I, I honestly, I, I'm, That's impressive. I'm kidding. Uh, obviously, we all have you know things that we think are going to work. I, I can't put my finger on something in specific um, that you know I, I thought we would do. Um, you know, I, I can't point to one that was a, a, a crazy runaway, and I also can't find one uh, this uh, at this point that is a a particular dud. Um, but you know, I'm sure that there have been, and and look, I I think, and this is not going to answer your question, uh, but um, you you have your plans, and you know, your pl- one of the things you learn in these businesses, no matter what you think is going to happen, it doesn't happen quite the way you expect. And I think you you need to have um, backup plans. So you know, here's a perfect example, and and this is kind of vanilla, but um, you know, leading into when I was at Steve Madden, leading into uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday, you know, we kind of knew what our discount off the site was going to be. Let's say it was going to be twenty five off the site. Um, we always made creative for 30 or 35% off the site so that if after, you know, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving business wasn't what we wanted it to be or after Thanksgiving, we had alternatives to swap out creative if we wanted to be more aggressive. And, you know, so it's, it's not exactly what you were, you were, you were after, but I think you've got to, you know, especially in peak periods of the year, you've got to have some uh, uh, alternatives just in case things are not going the way you want it to be. Gotcha. 
Um, okay, great. And then um, if you could go back to one of your earliest e-commerce experiences, what have you learned today that would impact the advice you would have given yourself back then that would have made your path either more successful or less stressful? It's kind of like if you could go back in time and talk to Mark 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, you know, some of it is around, you know, the question that you asked about attribution um, and analytics. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, analytics, whether it's attribution or others, analytics is hard. Um, most businesses have messy data um, and most businesses don't invest enough in you know, we all capture a lot of data, but we don't invest enough in, in instances of organizing the data and making it usable. Um, and, you know, I, I think that would be something that I learned from the, you know, the old catalog days. We didn't invest enough in the organization and we'll call it the data warehousing today. It's data lake and, you know, all kinds of other terms. Um, but, you know, the other, you know, part of it, um, we we didn't invest in the people to help us interpret the data. You know, I, I think that's a, uh, it's kind of a problem that is not only in data, but in a lot of third-party feature and function that people bring onto a, a site or into their business. They, they look at the cost of the SaaS uh, platform or the marketing dollars that they spend, and they forget that in order to make those tools work, you need to have people. Tools don't just work just because you bought them. Um, and a lot of businesses forget um, and they just keep layering in and layering in and layering in more tools, yet their size of their team doesn't change. And, you know, I, I've been in businesses, uh, people have heard me talk about this, you know, I call them over-tooled. You know, they, they uh, also... I guess I'm using a lot of cliches here, but you know, the shiny object syndrome, it's very easy to get enamored with, you know, what's hot at the moment. You know, we're all, everybody's talking about AI, you know, today, um, you know, it was search 10 years ago. It was, you know, personalization, you know, uh, after that. Um, and, you know, in, in a couple of years, it'll be something else, but, you know, I think it's around, you know, what, what I would have told myself, um, is be prepared to have organized data, be prepared to have people that are going to be able to interpret that data. And, you know, don't waste your time on stuff that's nice to know. You know, you almost want to work backwards um, when you when you do testing and analysis uh, and ask yourself, what will I do differently if this is what the result tells me? If you can't figure that out, then it's almost not even worth knowing what the answer is. And I've fallen into traps there. I'm an intuitive marketer, um, although I'm analytical. Um, sometimes you just ask the question, you want to see what the answer is, and then you'll figure out what to do with it. Um, but with limited resources, you really need to know what you're going to do before you spend a lot of time doing the analysis. Yeah, that's, that's uh, definitely insightful and definitely something learned from experience you can tell. Are there, and you kind of, touched a little bit on this, but are there trends or fads in today's DTC marketing that you simply don't agree with or believe the market's getting wrong? Uh, that's hard for me to say that, you know, the market is getting wrong. I, I think that, you know, look, AI, um, 
you know, is, is all the rage. But, you know, one of the things that people forget is so many of the tools that we've all been operating with, um, suggestive selling, you know, upselling, cross-selling, you know, on websites, um, even uh, in, in the case of, you know, some email marketing and, and SMS marketing. So many of those tools have been powered by AI before the term AI became popular. Um, it's not all of a sudden that it's new. Are there new capabilities? Absolutely. Um, but it's not nearly as new as, as some might, you know, have you think, um, uh, it, it's the case. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, th- and this is not a new thing and it's not specific to digital continuing to train our customers that there's a deal coming, you know, um, I wish I had the answer to this. I don't. So it's hard for me to say I dis- disagree with what people are doing. Um, but you know, there's this vicious, you know, um, uh, circling the drain for businesses that are just so promotional because they're, you know, it's easy to be promotional. It's not easy to sell your product and get value for the product that you're selling. Um, and it's also almost impossible to change a business that has become promotional and the customers expect the discount. Uh, it's almost impossible to change the customer's thinking about your brand. If I am selling a, a jacket um, where the retail prior to promotion is a hundred bucks, and that's what I feel like I should get for it based upon you know the cost and the feature and function in that jacket, well, that's what I should get. If I always tell the customer that they can buy that at 70 bucks, they're never going to want to pay $100 for it. And, you know, look at some of the major department stores, you look at other retailers, um, it's a real problem in our, in our industry. That's the classic bed bath, uh, the, the, the 20% off. I mean, who doesn't? <laughs> exactly Everyone was, I was thinking, thinking. that's listening, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it, obviously the pre overstock bed bath or whatever, whatever new thing we're about to experience with them, like, holy, holy wild. But I was on overstock. I, I was on, uh, I got an email from the new bed and bath, you know, powered by, you know, overstock and lo and behold, they gave me a $20, you know, yeah. $20 coupon. <laughs> I got you know? a 17%. Um, one. You know, my yeah. wife would <laughs> literally in the back of her car, in the back of the seat, you know, the little pouch there, she would have a stash of bed, bath and beyond, you know, coupons. And, you know, like you now, at least in New Jersey, have to take your own bag into the supermarket. You know, she never walked into a store without a handful of coupons. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen people trade them online, you know, post out on, on forums. Hey, I've got some extra bed, bath coupons. Anybody want them? (laughs) But you know, you're right though, from a digital experience, all you have to do is throw a coupon code for field on the form in the checkout for me. And I stop and I go search for coupon codes before I actually complete the transaction. It's almost like telling me, Oh, you must have a deal. I've got to go find it. Let me give it a shot. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, you know, th- that's a funny thing, Chuck, because, you know, one of the things, you know, we, we haven't talked about testing and, and your ability to test and the fact that you should test lots of different things. Um, you didn't ask the question. I will, I will throw this in just because you can doesn't mean you should. Right. Um, but there's a lot of things you should test. And one of the things that we've tested numerous times is whether you um, have that promo code box exposed or, you know, opened or you just have it, you know, closed. And does that change, you know, the customer's, um, you know, flow. And, um, you know, if you're a business that's highly promotional, you're sitting there saying, geez, I got to make it easy for the many customers that I know are going to use a coupon 
to find where they where they should uh, you know put it into the uh, into the order. So I hear you. It's a it's a, a challenge. And now there are even, of course, apps like Honey, or I think even if you just use Edge now, it'll just do it. It'll just say uh, Edge shopping. It'll pop up and it'll say, there are some coupon codes on this site that are valid. Try to run them. And then it's running through all of them. And then all all of the podcasters out there that are you know doing promotional codes or whatever, all of a sudden you have one that just shows and it's like, I'm clearly not associated to this podcast, but I'm getting the benefit of the 20% off that that podcast is presenting or whatever. You know, we need, we need a promo code right now at the bottom of the <laughs> What, get what? Listen for free. <laughs> <laughs> listen for free. <laughs> I love it. I, I think you should have a promo code to sell Nick's shirt. <laughs> ah, yes, exactly. I have another one. Do we need it? Oh man. I had it right here too. Where did I put it? That's true. That's a kind of a conservative shirt for you, Nick. Yeah, I I, I realized in our prep call we were going to do. Uh, I, I I was saying I was going to have like a really loud shirt, and I I failed you. <laughs> so uh, so Mark, what do companies get wrong about friction in their digital experiences? Like, what's a common belief that you just think about differently than typical? company? Uh, I think, you know, um, one of the things that gets in the way often is, you know, the amount of information that you ask for customers from customers before they actually get into the the shopping. Um, you know, a customer comes to the site. First thing that many, you know, uh, retailers are showing is a pop-up, a modal, if you will, to capture an email address and to uh, capture uh, an SMS, uh, you know, a, a cell number for SMS messaging in return for a discount. Uh, there are those that believe, and I've been in businesses where we've done that and aggressively. Uh, there are those that believe that you know that just is friction and gets in the way, um, you know, from the customer's experience. Your comment about promo code, you know, is a a friction. Uh, the ability to you know require a customer to log in um, as opposed to being able to you know check out as a guest is a, a, a friction point. Um, you know, returns. You know, if you're in apparel business and you know your return rate is you know let's call it 20%. That's a lot of people uh, and a lot of reverse logistics uh, to deal with. There's a lot of friction um, in, in the returns process. And, you know, my take, you know, on that particular one is look, um, if you're selling products and a customer doesn't want it, got to make it easy for them to give it back because that is a, um, a, a point where you can almost rest assured that if they have a problem, either getting it back to you or getting their refund on a, on a quick basis, the likelihood that they're going to shop from you again is a real problem. You know, you go back to, you know, to Amazon, you know, if I buy something today from Amazon and I don't like it, um, you know, Whole Foods is right around the corner from my house. I can run into Whole Foods and drop it off uh, there, um, or I can leave it at the front door and have the mailman get it. Um, and, you know, it's just a very convenient thing. And it, it doesn't, preclude me from trying things because I know it will be easy for me to get it back to them. Yeah. You know, I just recently bought a new bike helmet and they had a try before you buy option from Amazon, which I haven't seen before where I got to pick like three different helmets. They shipped all three. They didn't bill me for any of them. I had like 15 days to try it or 10 days to try it. And then I identified the ones I was sending back. I went and dropped them at Kohl's, you know, similar to 
Coles is closer to me than Whole Foods and made the process simple. And they charged me for the one helmet. I thought that was brilliant because I actually ended up with the most expensive helmet was the one I kept. I would probably not have tried it had they not done that. So that's an excellent example of taking the friction out and, and it causes people to try things they might not otherwise buy. Yeah. And it's hard, you know, depending upon the size of the business, you know, if you're a smaller retailer and you buy inventory down to the unit, you know, you're selling dresses perhaps, and, you know, you're, you're buying one or two of each and, you know, dresses have a notoriously, you know, high return rate. Um, on the one hand, you want to have her order the six and the eight, um, so that she can try it on at home. Um, but on the other hand, you could be hyperventilating a little bit because you only bought one, six and eight, or maybe only a handful. And now that's been taken out of commission. You can't sell it to somebody else while that customer is trying it on. So, um, it's, it, it's doesn't always work for all size businesses. True. And it, and to your point, it's the only time I've gotten that option on Amazon and I buy a lot on Amazon. So <laughs> clearly it's something in test and maybe certain categories that they can do. See, I, I feel like that adds friction. I don't want to plan to have to bring a product back to Amazon. I'd rather take the risk on the helmet that I want. And if I'm wrong, then I'll deal with the return, but I don't want to plan the return. I thought it was interesting. I was willing to give it a shot and it didn't stress me out too much. And, and it gave me a shot to, to try, you know, one I might not have bought. Look at that. We have built in point counterpoint here, you know, <laughs> so, so Mark, you touched on earlier. What's a question you wish we had asked that we haven't? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's much easier to do shows like this when you know the questions ahead of time, but you know, you wouldn't offer them up. So you had to make me think, um, you know, what would I have wanted you to, um, uh, ask. You know, one of the things, um, you know, and I actually did a, a LinkedIn post about this today. I, I might have wanted you to ask me a little bit about, um, you know, businesses that are somewhat mature and are, you know, being asked, you know, their, their marketing teams are being asked to, you know, budget now for next year. And they're looking for, you know, management comes in and says, you know, geez, we're looking for a 5%, you know, mid single digit, you know, kind of growth year over year. Um, and we expect that, you know, let's say it's 5%. We also expect a 5% or better increase in EBITDA. Um, so, you know, make sure that your budget, you know, factors that all in. Might've been interesting for you to ask me now, what do I do? All right. And now what do you do? <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, it's it's a real challenge um, because you, you know there's so many levers that you have to pull, um, and and to be fair, part of my post around that was to demonstrate to folks that there are things you can do post um, uh, order um, post order uh, monetization. But let's leave that out for a second. Um, you know, one of the things that you can you know do is. Re redouble your efforts on retention. You know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, um, you know, about, uh, you know, the fact that uh, you need to be able to acquire new customers, uh, you know, in your business um, and that retention rate, you know, really uh, matters. So, uh, customers or uh, retailers are getting a lot of traffic, um, but they're not doing as much with that traffic as they can. So if you got to get to that 5%, you know, growth and 
you, maybe last year you were flat or maybe even declined, you need to find some ways to bring new customers into the top of the funnel, um, which requires marketing spend, which is going against what your management has asked you for. Um, but you know, are there things that you could be doing on your site, um, much like we've just been talking about for the last 45 minutes about friction? How do I reduce the friction so that I can get more orders and more dollars from the traffic that I am getting? Um, and then, you know, also it's about, as I mentioned, retention. Um, you know, so many of these businesses are dealing with retention rates of 20, 25, 30%. And in order to even be flat, right, if that's your retention, call it 30%, that means that next year I need to bring in 70% of my customers brand new. You know, that's a real challenge for these businesses. And, and you know, you asked before about um, things that businesses, you know, are doing. Maybe they're not as uh, productive as possible. Just checking the box and having a loyalty program where you're giving away rewards for spend, I don't think that buys loyalty. Um, yeah, you know, if you've got, you know, certain, you know, brands, you know, my wife is a, she loves Bloomingdale's and, you know, she will go out of her way if she has, if she's going to buy something, whether a gift or something that she wants, she will go out of her way to buy it at Bloomingdale's versus an, another store because of their loyalty program. But you don't hear a lot about people saying, you know, I'm going to go buy my next um, pair of jeans from XYZ because their loyalty program is better than, you know, another brand. I, I just don't think that matters. If you're going to have a loyalty program, it's got to bring more than just discounts. It's got to bring experiences. It's got to bring things that I couldn't ordinarily get just as any other customer. And when I was at Steve Madden, we launched a loyalty program. And, you know, the idea behind it was to give experiences to that generation of, of customer, whether it be the opportunity to meet Steve himself or the opportunity to uh, go to music uh, venues with music artists that, uh, you know, the company was supporting, things that you couldn't buy. I think that breeds loyalty. Yeah, and that that actually ties into one of our conversations we had previously, uh, a different episode with with uh, Mike Shady, and we were talking about usability with this, and it's all about giving that good experience over and over and over and over again, and that's what builds the loyalty, not necessarily the the loyalty program. Now that might work with some people, but not everybody. It's all about that consistent good experience. His analogy was climbing up a ladder, and then when you have that bad experience, you fall off the ladder. How high up do you go with every experience? And then all of a sudden you're falling from the top and it hurts a lot, right? Because you've built this like brand trust, but then you have a bad experience and it's, you know, what, what does it take to have that bad experience? What, how do you stay on that ladder? How do you continue to climb up? I really like that analogy. So that would be a fun episode to tune into. Well, that's, that's a great final thought, Mark. And what a great conversation. Where can listeners find you? Uh, mostly on LinkedIn. Um, you can search on uh, Mark Friedman and uh, there's, there's a few Mark Friedmans, but you'll see me. Uh, my company is Details Interactive. Uh, you can also uh, check out the Marketing Playbook podcast on Apple Podcasts and also on Spotify. Um, and as they say, wherever you get your podcast. <laughs> Indeed. And, and actually, I've listened to several of the episodes. It's a great podcast. So Great, great, great tip. So uh, excellent. Uh, let's cover the key takeaways from today's show. 
Today, our conversation with Mark covered all things marketing, from changes in customer expectations to driving demand in e-commerce, attribution in today's multi-channel environment, and handling peak traffic periods. To recap, here are three frictionless ideas to take the smooth path to trust and loyalty. Number one, our marketing renaissance is occurring for some old school tactics to drive demand with direct-to-consumer brands opening stores and using direct mail like once popular catalogs. Mark explains how digitally native businesses eventually realized they needed other channels to grow their business and meet customer expectations. Shipping has become one of those factors with customers demanding faster delivery times for free. Additionally, they expect quick access to information, instant responses from customer service, and personalized experiences that are customized to their interest and their purchase history. Now, number two, attribution is complicated and requires triangulating different data points. It's a bit of science and a bit of art, actually no perfect model. Mark provides an example of a client who focuses on platform revenue and return on ad spend, but he advises there are better ways to look at attribution due to the many touches and interactions involved in the purchase. Many businesses, though, are challenged with messy data collection and inadequate analysis. It's not enough to only invest in analytics and attribution tools. You also have to invest in the people who can organize and interpret the data to answer what you should do differently when you get those results of that analysis. The more data available, the more you can understand where dollars are going and what's driving conversions. Inexpensive attribution tools like Google Analytics can provide valuable insights, and last click is still commonly used in the attribution models. But it's important to understand which channels are contributing to your customers' purchasing so you can adjust your overall channel mix and spending. Mark challenges his clients to fully understand their business and customers and which channels contribute to conversions so they can adjust that channel mix and know where to spend their marketing dollars. And number three, once a visitor is on your site, it's up to you to make sure they convert. Rather than only focusing on acquiring more customers, you really should capitalize on the existing traffic coming to your site, improve retention rates, and ultimately improve customer lifetime value. So bringing new customers to the top of the funnel through marketing spend is essential, but so is capitalizing on the traffic already coming to your site. Consider creating a loyalty program that offers more than just discounts or promotions, but a unique rewarding experience and focus on creating optimal personalized experiences for each customer. Lastly, when it comes to the holidays, Mark shared his experience with an apparel company preparing for the holiday season and load testing the site to ensure it can handle the increase in traffic. Remember that customers acquired during the holidays may have a different lifetime value than those obtained at other times of the year. Mark advises tracking the lifetime value of customers by the month or seasonality of the cohort in which they were. Thanks for joining us on the Frictionless Experience. We hope you've gained valuable insights to fuel your digital success. Your frictionless journey is just beginning. For more episodes filled with expert strategies and a sprinkle of digital magic, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, keep optimizing, keep slaying friction, and keep embracing the frictionless revolution.